Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we gently massage weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll visit the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Conference and listen to a postcard from the past. But first up, here's the news. Live fast and die young, leaving a good-looking corpse. Lifespan researchers have previously found that reducing the number of kilojoules you eat causes hormonal changes that let you live longer. Unfortunately, starving half the time isn't fun, and there are other harmful effects to the caloric restriction diet. Most life extension researchers are very thin because they naturally experiment on themselves. One researcher discovered the hormonal changes from eating dramatically less meant that she couldn't become pregnant until she went back on a normal diet and gained some healthy fat. There are all sorts of dangers in the diet, depending on your present health, so it's not recommended. High hopes have been held out for understanding the changes that restricting energy in the diet cause in the body, and then using drugs to cause just those changes. Resveratrol is available in grapes and other fruits and vegetables, and it's now sold in health food markets. Unfortunately, in experiments with mice where resveratrol has been increased, the effects of ageing are reversed and you do get healthier, but the mice die just as young. Mice given resveratrol in mouse middle age will grow old in good health. Their bones were denser, the heart stronger and the kidneys better at filtering blood. They developed cataracts later than normal mice, but unlike the dieting mice, they didn't live longer. One of the ways that resveratrol works is by increasing the expression of the protein SIRT1. So another team studied mice with lower amounts of the protein SIRT1 and found that lower amounts of the protein also seem to be beneficial for the brain, though detrimental to lifespan. The petri dish-grown neurons with reduced SIRT1 seem to fend off harmful oxidants better than cells with normal levels of the protein. The same thing happened for mice completely lacking the protein. However, rodents missing SIRT1 also tended to die at a younger age than normal mice, just with less brain ageing. Eating a caloric restriction diet will give you a healthier, longer life, but has some nasty side effects such as infertility. We know that one of the main changes is the production of more of the protein SIRT1. Taking resveratrol to increase SIRT1 will improve your health but not extend your life. Lowering the production of the protein SIRT1 will slow the aging of your brain, but also will not extend your life. Though resveratrol seems to be resoundingly safe, people have been taking it for decades, chemicals that ramp up the production of SIRT1 in an attempt at copying the effects of dieting could expose the brain to oxidative damage. Your brain will rust. So far, cutting 30-50% to of kilojoules or calories in your diet makes every kind of animal from worms to mice to humans live longer and healthier. 
but the cost of fertility and maybe aging your brain faster. Aging is a complex process we're still getting to grips with. We'll understand it fully if we can just live long enough. Why just seize the day when you can create the future? The Live Futures 2020 Festival will be held on Sunday, August 17th at Newtown Square opposite Newtown Station in Sydney. It'll be a one-day festival to explore the future. What a great way to start National Science Week. The festival will be run simultaneously in Newtown in real life and online on the islands of Jocadia in Second Life. There will also be a virtual world created on the day with vast park by all the participants. Explore the future with young people, futurists, climate experts, scientists, artists, designers, technologists, filmmakers and performers. Create the future together in workshops, interactive forums, exploration and expression spaces. What kind of future do you want to live in? How will current technologies develop sustainable futures for all the world's people? What do nanotech, biotech, robotics and artificial intelligence really offer? How do these help us solve health, food, climate challenges, water and other resources and sustainability problems? Explore the virtual worlds of Second Life and Vast Park. Design collaboration spaces for global youth futures. Hear from experts, futurists and artists coming in from all around the world into Jocadia Island and Second Life. Explore the universe with the Worldwide Telescope. See a printer that can print your cup and bowl, as featured on Diffusion. 3D printing that will change the face of manufacturing and the impact of carbon from shipping forever. It may be sitting in your house next to your inkjet printer in a few years. Take a team challenge or set the team as a challenge and see how they address issues of the future. Give your answers and judge the winners. Join talks on cool new things on the internet and share yours. An unconference, a Twitter fest, cinema, award-winning science cinema, the Portable Film Festival, more portable than ever, alternative fuel cars, how-tos on alternative energy, and reversing and reducing global warming. I'll be there talking about the space race to be second on the moon. Co-create a new Sydney. Work with an artist and a designer to retrofit Sydney to make it sustainable. Create the cities you want, with entertainment and expression spaces, community spaces, suburbs that are alive. Alternative housing and development. Live Futures 2020 is part of National Science Week and supported by the Futures Foundation. The current website is globalyouthfutures.org. The SpaceX Falcon 1 spacecraft exploded after launch on the weekend when the first and second stages failed to separate. Video from the launch was streamed live from Omelek Island, 2,500 miles off the coast of Hawaii, and watched by people all over the world, including me. After launch, SpaceX switched to a video camera mounted on the rocket itself. When the anomaly, as SpaceX are calling it, occurred, the video stream simply cut off. Ground Control have not yet released video of the explosion, but they have confirmed that they've lost the spacecraft. This was the third launch for the Falcon 1 spacecraft. SpaceX planned that by Falcon 9, they'll be ready to operate manned space missions. The company was established in 2002 by Elon Musk, the founder of PayPal. Designed from the ground up by SpaceX at headquarters in Hawthorne, California, Falcon 1 was a two-stage, liquid-oxygen, rocket-grade, kerosene-powered launch vehicle. The first stage was powered by a single SpaceX Merlin 1C regenerative engine, flying for the first time on this Flight 3 mission. It worked exactly as it should have. 
the Falcon 1's second stage, was powered by a SpaceX Kestrel engine. Current reports are that it was a stage separation and not the second stage itself that caused the explosion. Falcon 1 is the first new orbital rocket in more than a decade. Merlin is the first new American hydrocarbon engine for an orbital booster to be flown in more than 40 years, and only the second new American engine of any kind in more than a quarter of a century. If it had achieved orbit, Falcon 1 would have been the first privately developed liquid fuel rocket to orbit the Earth. The primary customers were the Department of Defence, the Government of Malaysia, and NASA. Falcon 1 was carrying a payload stack of three separating satellites, which naturally were destroyed in the launch anomaly. The Malaysian government owned the device for separating the payload from Falcon 1's second stage. The second stage is what would have propelled the satellites into orbit. Stage separation was planned through redundantly initiated separation bolts and a pneumatic pusher system. It was this system that failed to deploy and led to the loss of the spacecraft. The payload included the Trailblazer satellite for the Department of Defence, NASA's PRESAT microscopic laboratory satellite that monitors the growth of yeast cells living in a controlled environment, and NASA's NanoSail-D, which was going to unfurl an ultra-thin solar sail, 10 metres by 10 metres, to be the first spacecraft to tack the solar wind like a yacht. Johannes Kepler first considered sailing by solar pressure when he observed how comet tails are blasted away from the sun by the solar wind. The aluminium-coated gossamer-thin sail was to be pushed along the solar wind. I hope they built a spare. You can watch streaming space video at www.spacevidcast.com live. And you can follow announcements on Twitter on at spacevidcast with separate Twitter updates from at nanosaild and at presat. If you'd also followed Mars Phoenix on Twitter, you would have seen the Aviation Week story about NASA giving secret briefings to the White House about confronting data from Mars, which would then, of course, denied as a silly rumour. You can follow me on Twitter at what else but at Ian Wolf, one word. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Science, science, science is golden. 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 Science is Golden by the Greats. Earlier, I spoke with Dr. Stephen Graves, Director of the Hunter Area Pathology Service and the Australian Rickettsial Reference Laboratory. My name is Stephen Graves and uh, I'm going to be talking about the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Conference in Cambridge. 
Dr. Graves, for people who don't know much about chronic fatigue syndrome, I know it's a lot to ask, but would you be able to briefly give people an idea what the illness is? Yes, I certainly can. Yes, you're right. People don't know a lot about it, and even the people that say they know a lot about it are often very confused. Essentially, chronic fatigue syndrome is a disease that can't really be diagnosed with any tests, and it's a clinical diagnosis where people have a period of fatigue that exceeds six months. So six months is taken as the cutoff point. And so usually something happens to them, they get unwell, and they have this fatigue that goes on beyond six months. Now, in some cases, it can go on for nine, 12 months. In other patients, it can go on for years, and occasionally it can actually go on for decades. So it's a very diverse disease with a lot of other features associated with it. Some patients have other symptoms, but the, the thing that's common to all of them is this fatigue ability. People don't have any energy. They can't do their normal work. They can't do their normal social activities. And if you test their muscle activities, you actually take them into a laboratory and get them to do an exercise involving muscular activity, they cannot do it as well as normal people of that age and sex. So there are biological or biomedical markers for this disease but the main one is this chronic fatigue that just goes on and just doesn't seem to get better for these poor people. And it's not just a physical fatigue, is it? It's also an intellectual and emotional That's fatigue. Right. There are other, the other sort of things that go with it are what's called a brain fog, where people feel they can't function properly. Now, the reason for that is probably that their blood pressure is not working properly and they're not getting adequate brain circulation of blood. So that's probably the main thing there. But you're right, it can, be, it can be an emotional thing as well. It can be a tiredness where people don't sleep well. There can be pain associated with the chronic fatigue syndrome. Different pressure points on the body can cause pain. So there's a number of different subgroups. In fact, one of the people at the conference, uh, Professor Jonathan Kerr, has divided chronic fatigue syndrome into seven different groups based on molecular studies of which parts of their DNA are malfunctioning. And so he's actually got these seven groups based on different types of illnesses that they've got. So it's not one illness. It's not like measles or it's not like a, a broken limb or something like that. It's a lot more complicated. It's heterogeneous, really. So there's a lot of different paths, I think, that can lead someone into the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. It seems to be an illness that has more than one cause. Oh, yes, most definitely. It's like, I use the word fever or high temperature. Now, you say someone's got a fever or a high temperature, but we know very well that there are dozens and dozens of different causes why someone might have a high temperature. So it's the same with this disease. There are probably many, many different precipitating factors. Now, one of the most important precipitating factors that we believe is infection, and different types of microorganisms seem to be responsible for these infections. So infection is one. Another seems to be certain chemicals, chemical exposures that can cause people to also develop this type of uh, syndrome. So, yes, the fatigue is the common end pathway of a whole variety of what you might call environmental stimuli that are, are affecting a person. And it's not anyone, it's a person with a, a particular genetic predisposition. So it's like a disease that 
you and I might be exposed to exactly the same virus, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm predisposed and get the chronic fatigue as a, as a sequelae of the infection. You're not genetically predisposed. You get an acute infection, you get over it, and you're back to normal again. So it's a two-component disease. There's a genetic susceptibility, which is being shown now by the work of several people. So there's a genetic component to the illness, and so certain people are more susceptible than others, and that's being shown by the work of Kerr, looking at the genes of these people. And then there's an environmental stimulus, which in many cases appears to be an infection. And our work suggests that it could be a Q fever organism or rickettsial disease that could be the precipitant infection. What about rickettsia? What's that? Well, rickettsia are, are, are carried by ticks mainly, and in Australia, the uh, tick that that can cause this is probably a uh, tick that's found on bush animals, but it also likes biting people as well. So we've had a few examples of people who've been bitten by these ticks and have actually developed an illness and gone on to get a fatigue-like process. Q fever, on the other hand, although it is transmitted by ticks, most people get it as an aerosolised infection when, when animals kick up dust and dirt and things like that and the microorganisms in the dust and people inhale it so uh, but that, that's also an intracellular bacterium and i believe there's something a little odd going on with the immune systems of people with chronic fatigue syndrome most definitely just about everybody who's looked at these people finds an abnormality in their immune system you see the immune system is designed to deal with infection when someone is exposed to a microorganism immune system essentially is meant to destroy it. The process of destroying it, the patient gets sick for a little while. That's an acute illness. So when you get exposed to influenza virus, you, you get the flu and you go, go to bed, you're sick, you've got a fever, you're very fatigued, your muscles ache and all the rest of it. And that's quite normal. And once, the, once your immune system has destroyed that microorganism by switching on and doing certain things, it's meant to go back to normal. Now, in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, the feeling is that the immune system doesn't go back to normal properly and it continues to stick along at an elevated rate. It's what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines are being produced by an immune system. And nearly everyone that's looked at these chronic fatigue syndrome patients have found uh, raised pro-inflammatory cytokines and these are probably what's, what are making the patient feel unwell. Right, and I believe there's two systems in the immune system. Is it Th1 and Th2? Oh, that's getting very technical now. You've certainly <laughs> done your homework there. The Th1 system is essentially the, the component of the system that destroys microorganisms that are infecting humans, and in the process of destroying them, you get a, an inflammatory response. The Th2 system tends to be a system that doesn't actually destroy the organism, the invading microorganism, but allows it to persist and establishes a chronic infection. And so you get a host-parasite relationship that is, allows the parasite or the microorganism to persist and the host to persist also. It's a sort of balance between the immune system of the patient and the survival of the microorganism. So patients that have got a Th2 response to microorganism are more likely to get chronic fatigue syndrome than someone who's got a Th1 response. This, the T refers to the T lymphocytes. Uh, the, and the helper T lymphocytes and how they deal with these invading microorganisms. So as a result of these better understandings of what seems to be causing it and what the processes are, are there any new treatments on the horizon? Well, 
there's lots of being treatments being talked about, and at the conference quite a few were mentioned, but most of them haven't actually been tried with very many patients. And some of them are antiviral compounds, which uh, work to destroy the viruses, and some of them are substances that modulate or modify the immune response. But there's no rec at this point in time, unfortunately, there's no recognised, approved um, treatment protocol that works with the with the bulk of patients. You know, what practitioners tend to do, they try something and see if it works with the patient, and if it does, all well and good. If it doesn't, they try something else. So we're we're almost at the pre-antibiotic stage of treating infectious diseases with regard to chronic fatigue syndrome. We don't have the magic bullets yet that will actually zero in and treat exactly what's wrong with the patient. So the answer to your question is really no good treatment just yet. So if you're someone who has been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, what basically do you just have to trust that your doctor will, through trial and error, find something that might work for you or... That's pretty much what it comes down to at the moment. Until this basic biological research is finished and we really know what the pathogenesis is of chronic fatigue syndrome, the treatment protocol at the moment is uh, find yourself a practitioner who at least understands chronic fatigue and has, has treated patients with chronic fatigue and let them try certain protocols on you and see how they work. Because in some patients they do work and they get quite good relief and in other patients, they don't, so they have to try something else. So it's very much hit and miss at the moment. As I say, we're in a very early stage of understanding of this disease or this group of diseases, and as a consequence, treatment is not very well developed yet. Oh, so it's not quite so hopeful at the moment. I know it's very difficult to find a doctor who does understand chronic fatigue syndrome if you're in that position. Uh, so I guess it's a matter of luck and uh, knowing the right people. Well... The, the, the problem is a lot, of, a lot of people who have had chronic fatigue syndrome for a long time uh, are pretty uh, depressed and miserable and feeling unhappy with life. And it stands to reason why they should be feeling so. So unfortunately, a lot of doctors will classify these people as having an emotional illness, having a, even a psychiatric illness. But uh, they haven't seen the patient before they got sick, you see. So I've had the benefit of seeing patients before they've got sick, and they're perfectly normal, just like you and me. Energy, get up and go, go off to school, go off to work, you know, normal social life. Then something happens to them, usually infection, and then they get this chronic fatigue syndrome. And their doctor, or the doctor they consult, only sees them down the track, months down the track, or even even years down the track and they're not the same person that they were before so this is the problem doctors only actually see you at that point of time when you're consulting with them where they're consulting with you uh, so there's a lot of um what shall i say misunderstanding about chronic fatigue syndrome amongst the medical profession and i'm a doctor so i can i can say that my colleagues are not very um sympathetic about patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and it's a great shame it is definitely a disease with a true biological basis. It's just that we don't understand what it is yet. Right. So it's, it's still the invisible illness and the, the patients have to be good advocates at the moment to um, find the right doctor and get some good treatment. Once it's all sorted out and we've, we've got proper treatments, well, people will be able to go to any GP and, and there'll be a test for chronic fatigue syndrome. So there'll be a blood test which can be sent off. The result will come back. The doctor will say, well, Mrs. Smith, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome and here's the recommended treatment for it. Take these tablets twice a day for three weeks or whatever. And it'll be just like most of the other illnesses that we now deal with. But we're just not at that point in time yet. 
Thank you, Stephen Graves, very much. Very welcome. Next up, American Moon by Bobby Dimple, Looney Ladies Chorus, Lipple Cutie Kids, and the Hutch Davy Diggers Band. One small step for a man One giant leap for mankind There's an American flag on the moon tonight Flying red and blue and white There's an American flag waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight There's an American flag, can't you see? Sitting on the sea of tranquility There's an American flag Waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight I'm not a bit neurotic Not a bit psychotic Oh no, no I'm only patriotic Gloriowski, what a kick I'm a luna, una, luna, una, lunatic It's an American moon If you please Refer to it now As American cheese Stars and stripes Light up the Milky Way Hey Apollo 11 Delivered our heavenly right to On third. Who, who, who had the very last word? Made the moon. What comes next? Put your money on the New York Mets. Girl, you And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, or if you'd like to be on radio, would you like to join Diffusion? Would you like to broadcast science? Would you like to share your passion for science? Then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Not a bit psychotic. Oh, no, no. I'm only patriotic. Gloria, what a kick. I'm a Luna, oh, no. Luna, oh, no. lunatic. It's an American moon, if you please. Refer to it now as American cheese. Stars and stripes light up the Milky Way. Oh, oh, eleven delivered our heavenly right to, to say. We're made the moon if they sit in the USA. Apollo. 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 Apollo.